you guys probably know about old little Johnny. I've only got about five jokes and only one of them's decent. And so this might be one of the four that's not as far as any funny at all. They're all decent, just maybe not funny. Little Johnny goes to school. It's a weekend. He comes back from the weekend. It's Monday. And the teacher says, hey, what'd you do this weekend? And little Johnny says, well, went fishing. She says, oh, you went fishing? Well, how'd you do? Did you catch anything? He said, yes, ma'am. We caught all kinds of fish. She said, really? What do you mean by all kinds of fish? How many did you catch? She said, we caught a hundred. She said, you caught a hundred fish. She said, that's a lot, little Johnny. You're prone to exaggeration. Are you serious? You caught a hundred fish? He said, yes, ma'am. Caught a hundred fish. She said, well, were they big? He said, oh, they were huge. She said, how big? He said, they weighed a hundred pounds apiece. She said, little Johnny, you are making that up. That'd be 10,000 pounds of fish. You don't have a boat big enough to hold 10,000. He said, me and my dad caught 100 fish and they weighed 100 pounds apiece. She said, Johnny, that's a lie. That's not true. What if I just made up a story? Like I'm coming to school one day and this huge 10-foot grizzly bear came out from the woods and started attacking my car. And then all of a sudden this two-pound chihuahua came running from the other side, grabbed that grizzly bear by the nose, flipped him over, beat him up, and chased him into the woods. Would you believe that? He said, yes, ma'am. That's my dog. <laughs> I don't know when the last time you were in a very serious storm was. Uh, there are lots of storms that have hit various places in Alabama. I remember not too many years ago, I was scheduled to preach at the congregation up in Athens, Alabama, the Bethel Church of Christ. And the day I was scheduled to speak, you know, the services were canceled that evening because a tornado had come and hit that building and totally flattened it. I don't know if you remember those storms that came through there, North Alabama. They were in, the several members of the church were there in the basement of the building when it hit. In fact, they said as they were down in the basement, a couple of them were standing at the top of the stairs and they were listening and watching and you could see it coming and you could hear it and they stood up there as long as they felt like they were safe and then went down into the basement and it just smashed the building right around them. I don't know when you have been in a storm or in a situation where you felt immediate insecurity and potential death breathing down your neck. I remember years ago we were doing some mission work in the Bahamas and to get to that little islands where we were needing to go, you flew a major jet into the big airport, but then to get over to the other smaller ones, you took some little prop planes. Lots of times they would hold 14, 15, 16 passengers or so, maybe 50 if it was a bigger prop plane. And if you've done much traveling on some of those smaller planes, you know that they're prone to turbulence. And especially if the weather's not good, especially if there is a storm front coming, etc. And so we got on this plane, but when we got up, we were experiencing serious turbulence. I'm talking so much that it would lurch into a deep valley of turbulence, then shoot back up, etc. And this had never occurred in any plane that I've been on, but the flight attendant was coming around asking you how much you weighed to even out the weight distribution on the plane. That's how serious it was. Now, at the time, my brother Cliff, uh, my middle brother, was a defensive end for the football team. He weighed about, you know, I'm going to say 220, 230, pretty brawny guy. And the flight attendant came to him, said, how much do you weigh? And 
he said 220. And there was a guy sitting in front of him that he felt like was much bigger than he was. Well, the flight attendant came up to that guy sitting in front of him and said, how much do you weigh? And that guy said 220. And my brother Cliff, who was about 17 at the time, said, you're lying. He said, I weigh 220 and I know you weigh a lot more than I do. This is a matter of life and death. You tell the truth. And he bumped his weight up to considerably more than 220. You ever been in a situation where you thought you were about to die? Well, that's the situation we find the apostles in as we are looking at Jesus calming a storm. If you've got your Bibles, open those to Matthew chapter 8. And in Matthew chapter 8, you're going to see a situation in which the apostles believe that they are going to die. And you look right there in verse 23. The text explains to us, Now, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea. Now, let's put this in a little bit of perspective as far as You've got Peter, James, and John who are here with Jesus. What was their occupation, Peter, James, and John? They were fishermen. And this sea that they're on, Peter, James, and John have frequented probably their whole life. This is nothing unusual for them to come up against a little weather. But these seasoned fishermen who have seen probably more storms than any of us have ever even thought about seeing, who have weathered more in boats on this particular sea, of all the people that would not be prone to being scared easily, it would be Peter and James and John. They were accustomed to this kind of thing. But this particular tempest was so severe and so bad that even Peter, James, and John, who are seasoned fishermen, feel like this is their last fishing outing. Now, they probably weren't even fishing this time. They just thought it was their last boating outing. Now, I don't know how many boats you've been on. I avoid boats most of the time. I get fairly bad motion sickness. I remember the last time I tried to go deep sea fishing, I took as much Dramamine as I could take. I took it two days before, and then I took it the day before, and then I took it the day of, and I was going to do everything I could to make sure I got to keep on fishing. Everything I could. Well, we got in, in the boat, and there were waves that were about six to eight feet. Now, that doesn't sound bad. I mean, a six to eight foot wave. But when you're up six feet, down six feet, that's about how tall I am, and we were hitting six to eight foot waves up and down, Needless to say, my Dramamine was ineffective and I did not have the kind of trip I had hoped that I had. I don't know why I ate orange cheesy Doritos before I went, but that was a mistake. That was a mistake. You know, that's six to eight foot wave. That's it. These seasoned fishermen are on a boat and they have seen storms in their life, but this storm, this storm is one they think is going to literally kill them. What was Jesus doing? 
in the middle of this storm that was so frightening to these seasoned fishermen that they thought they were going to literally die. Jesus is, he's asleep. Now, I don't know about you guys, and there again, uh, if you've been on a boat or in an airplane when there's severe turbulence, generally speaking, it's not ideal sleeping conditions. Uh, Not the ones I've been on. Uh, Lots of times, if you have a person that is any kind of motion sick or any kind of nervous or whatever, they are sitting there with white knuckles holding on to the sides of their airplane armrest, thinking, I hope this will just quit. When will this quit? Five minutes of that feels like five hours of it. It, It's not a restful situation. And yet Jesus is in the bottom of the boat, asleep. And so the apostles come down to him and they say, Teacher, don't you care that we're dying? We're about to die here and you're sleeping through it. Now, as you look at the text, they come to Jesus, they explain to him that he obviously doesn't care about their life because if he did, he would be awake helping them. And he says to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose... You know, I love how the Bible will just give you one sentence about what Jesus did with very little commentary about it all. Then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. He gets out of bed. and gets out of whatever he's laying on. I picture him climbing some type of ladder up to the or, or walking up some type of steps. These waves are probably 10, 12, 14, 15 feet. They're probably crashing in on the deck. These fishermen have seen storms before. They've probably never seen anything like this because they thought they were going to die. Jesus says to the waves and the sea, stop. You think the apostles had ever tried that? Ever been in the middle of a big storm and they just tried to tell the sea to stop? Hey, you know, quit. That's that's enough. Wave if you'll just stop. And it's not a gradual slowing down. It's not like the waves go from 10 feet to 12 feet. I mean, from 12 to 10 and from 10 to 9 and from 9 to 7. It's not like it gradually subsides. It stops immediately. Think the apostles ever seen anything like that? A storm that stops immediately. I looked up the worst storm in, I think it's in any country's history. The greatest super typhoon that has ever occurred to anybody's knowledge. And I believe it was on October the 6th or 12th, it's in the month of October 1976, I believe it was. It was a super typhoon named TIP, T-I-P. It was a Category 5. Now, they say Category 5 because there's no Category 6. Once you get to Category 5, it's just anything above that is just a worse Category 5. Category 5, the winds can reach a minimum for it to be classified as a Category 5 of, I think, right at 129 to 153 miles per hour. In Super Typhoon Trip, the waves were 190 miles, the wind, 
was 190 miles an hour. The storm covered 13,000 square miles. Now, of course, the bulk of that was out into the ocean. 13, is it 13,000? No, 1,300, 1,300 square miles, which is a circular pattern from New York City down to Dallas, Texas. If it had been over the United States of America, it would have been from New York City to Dallas, Texas. With winds at 190 miles per hour, that's about the speed of a NASCAR driver driving a NASCAR around a speed track. 190 miles an hour. Can you imagine being in Super Typhoon Tip? 190 mile an hour winds and someone standing unafraid in the middle of it saying to the wind, stop. And it does it. Now that's something, isn't it? There's a reason why this story is found right here in the book of Matthew. I'm going to give you a little bit of Matthew's structure here this evening, and I want you to see what the Bible is trying to do for you as it puts this story about Jesus right here. You'll remember probably the Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And at the very end of Matthew chapter 5 through 7, chapters 5 through 7, there's a statement made about Jesus that is going to color the next two or three chapters of the Bible. Now, I don't know if you've got a Bible that's got the little headings. But I'm going to go through mine that has the little headings, and we're going to see what happens after the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus stands up to preach the Sermon on the Mount, and he explains to the people who are listening, you've heard that it was said by those of old. There are some people telling you this, but I tell you. And then he starts explaining things to them in a way they've never heard it explained. Now, the reason that you can know that that's the case is because right there at the end of Matthew chapter 7, you read this statement in verses 28 and 29. And so it was when Jesus had ended these things that the people were astonished at his teachings. They marveled at, at how he was teaching them because, notice, he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. You know, what does it mean that he taught them as one having authority? Here's what it means. He said it like he was in charge. And that if he said it, it was going to happen, it was the case, and you should understand and do what he says. He said it like he had the power to tell people what to do. Now, from that statement for the next couple chapters, you're going to see why Jesus taught like he had authority. Now you go to Matthew chapter 8, and what's the next thing that Jesus does? Now I've got some little writings over my headings. The, the next thing I've got from Matthew 8, 1 to 4, my little heading that's in my New King James Bible says, Jesus cleanses a leper. And then I wrote out beside that, the power to heal. Okay, so number one, you've got Jesus saying, I know what I'm talking about when I say it, it's going to happen and you need to do it. And so they're wondering, 
as they read this statement about Jesus, okay, where does Jesus get his authority? So then to prove that he has the right to tell us what to do, the next thing he does is heal sickness. Okay, very, very interesting. He can heal a leper. The leprosy that was going on in the first century, nobody could heal. This was an incurable disease. So he heals leprosy. And then you see that he heals the centurion servant. And then you see that Peter's mother-in-law is healed. And then you see that many are healed at the Sabbath. So what's the next point of Matthew's writing? Number one, Jesus can tell you what to do. Number two, you know why? He can heal people. Oh, but that's not all he can do. Not only does he have power over the teaching, but he also has power over disease. But then as you look in the next statement, our discussion about the storm, he's got power over what? Nature. Had anybody ever seen a leper healed like Jesus healed a leper? No. Anybody ever seen a storm calmed like Jesus calmed a storm? No. Then, in verse 28, what is Jesus' next feat of authority and power? Okay, number one, he teaches like nobody else. Number two, he can heal lepers and all kinds of disease. Doesn't matter what disease it is, he can heal it. Number three, he can say to a super typhoon with a 190 mile an hour wind, stop and it stops. And then you look in verse 28, and who else does Jesus boss around? Evil spirits. Now, as we look at that from a 21st century idea, uh, it seems odd to us. And I believe I can tell you why God allowed evil spirits to do things in the first century. I believe it was for the express purpose of showing that Jesus had power and has power over every single realm of existence. That evil spirits were allowed to physically do things in the first century so when Jesus showed up, there would not be an aspect of reality that he did not prove he was in charge of. And so you've got these two guys who are filled with evil spirits. Nobody up to this point has been able to do anything to them. And what does Jesus do? Cast out the evil spirits. So here's what you got. Authority over teaching. Authority over sickness. Authority over nature. Authority over evil spirits. As you continue, now here's, the, here's where we're really going here. Chapter 9, paralytic man comes to Jesus. His friends lower him. Now this isn't the one where they lower him through the house. And behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And Jesus said to the man, son, be of good cheer, you're what? Your sins are forgiven. Now, here's the interesting aspect to Jesus' claim to authority. How many sins can you forgive? I mean, you're in the, I don't know, let's say you're, oh, you're at a, I don't know, maybe some kind of cafeteria or something, and there's somebody in front of you, and that person is moving along, and they spill their tray, and they say a cuss word. And you go to them, you say, it's all right, friends. I forgive you for saying a cuss word. How forgiven do they feel after you do that? 
What if you were to go to them and say, I'll tell you what, you give me five bucks, I'll forgive your sin. You think you'd get the five bucks? No, because you saying you can forgive a person's sin means absolutely nothing. But what has all of this other power over stuff led up to? The fact that when Jesus says it, it really does happen. Now see, here's the crux of this discussion. Could you see the wind stop? Yeah. Could you see the man healed of leprosy? Yeah, it was physical. You could see it. Could you see the, in one sense, see the effect of Jesus casting out the demons? Yes. So when Jesus then says, your sins are forgiven, it's something you can't see. And so all the people want to know, well, who is it? Who does he think he is? Forgiving people's sins like that. Only God forgives people's sins. But if in the next sentence he can say, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, work with me here, but he can say, oh, you don't believe that I can forgive sins? Okay, this man's paralyzed, get up and walk. And he gets up and walks. And you can see that he can take care of the paralyzation. Then what's the implication? If he says get up and walk and the guy gets up and walk, then if he says your sins are forgiven, then what? Well, there's just one left. Really, ultimately, after this, you'll see a, a discussion that will turn a different way. After this, there's only one thing left. Not only can Jesus forgive sins, but what's the thing that nobody can do? I mean, nobody's been able to do any of this stuff yet, but what's the thing that ultimately nobody, nobody can do? When somebody dies, they die. They don't come back to life. Nobody but God has got the power over life and death, and people just don't come back to life. Power over teaching, power over disease, power over nature, power over demons, power over sins. And you look right there in verse 18 of chapter 9. I've got the little heading, a girl restored to life and a woman healed. Power over death. What's the point? Whenever Jesus says it, that's what happens. Jesus never gets it wrong. He never makes a statement where something doesn't do what He says. If He says to the wind, stop, guess what? Stops. If He says to the demons, go, they go. If He says to a person's physical life, come back, the person is healed. Jesus has all authority. He never gets it wrong. You ever met a person that never gets it wrong? Never gets anything wrong? That everything he ever says is right? Now, I know you've met some people that think everything they ever say is right, but you've never seen a person that gets every single thing right every time. Now, you're going to have to work with me on this next statement. Because just, just my dad was, was notorious for making this statement when I grew up, when I was growing up. And growing up, I, I didn't really understand what he meant by it at all. Until years later, and I figured it out. My dad would say to me, you know, he would tell us something that seemed unreasonable almost to us as little kids. He would explain that something was about to happen or that this person or this animal would do this or that. And it would happen and we would think, wow, Dad, that's amazing. I can't believe you even knew that. 
And then he would come back with this statement. He would say, if I tell you that a chicken dips snuff, you better look under its wing. Now, I don't know if you've ever used that statement. If I tell you that a chicken dips snuff, you better look under its wing. Now, my dad was not trying to encourage smokeless tobacco use at all. In fact, he was adamantly opposed to that and thought that it would cause mouth cancer and steered us away from any type of tobacco use whatsoever. That's not what he was pushing here. Here was the gist of it as I came to understand it later in life. Just a show of hands, if you don't mind, how many of you have ever seen a chicken dip snuff? Right, number one, there's several reasons why chickens don't dip snuff. Their beaks are really small. And they don't have wings with which they could even dip snuff out of a snuff can and put it in their beaks. And chickens are not smart at all anyway, and so they wouldn't have the intelligence to do it. And so the whole point is, here's the whole point. You've never seen a chicken dip snuff. Okay? But what my dad was saying is, but if I tell you that one does, you better look under its wing because guess what you're going to find? So you bought into it too. You're not going to find a snuff can underneath that chicken's wing. Chickens don't dip snuff. But that's what my dad was saying. That that one right there would. Now, it was remarkable that when he said something he got it wrong, you know, we didn't hear much about it. I mean, the, 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 the snuff packing poultry was absent from the conversation there when he missed it. But when he got it right, it was, well, if I tell you that chicken dip snuff, right you better look on her swing because it does. Now, here's what you will see throughout the course of the Bible's discussion of Jesus' discourse with everybody in the world. If Jesus says it, it's right. All the time, whether you've ever seen it, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, if Jesus says it, that's what will happen. Now, as we explore that, there's some things that we look at like this storm calmed in a split second, and we see that. But there's some other stuff that, that seems, you know, it kind of seems odd, but it's put in there for this particular reason. If Jesus says it, this is what happens. You go to Matthew chapter 17, and in Matthew chapter 17, near the end of the chapter, I believe it is, you're going to read a story about Peter and the, I think it's probably the Sadducees, the chief priests and rulers of the Jewish people come to Peter and they accost Peter and say, does your master pay the temple tax? Now, the temple tax was a two drachma tax that every Jewish male, if I understand it correctly, was supposed to pay. I don't know exactly when. I think it was annually. And so Peter responds to them and says, yeah, he pays it. But then he goes to Jesus and Jesus knows what he's about to say even before he says it. And so he says to Peter, Peter, let me ask you a question. Who has to pay taxes, the citizens of a particular place or the son of the king? Well, when's the last time a dad made his son pay taxes? Um, you just don't do that. The answer to that is very obvious. You make the citizens pay taxes, but you don't make the son pay taxes. And so Peter responds, uh, the citizens have to pay taxes. And Jesus says, so the son is free. Is that right? I mean, that's what he's saying. What's his point? Who owns the temple? God. 
Who doesn't have to pay taxes to God? God's son. And so Jesus is trying to explain, hey, I don't have, I don't have to pay the temple tax and still be morally right, but I'm going to. But I don't have to. I just want you to understand that I'm God's son and God doesn't make me pay taxes. But he then says, here's what I want you to do, Peter. Go down to the sea, throw in a hook, and the first fish you pull up will have a piece of money in its mouth. Happened to be a four drachma piece of money. A stater, if I understand the word correctly. Perfect temple tax for two people. That's what he told Peter he was going to find. Go throw in a hook, pull up a fish, the first one you catch, and look in its mouth. You know, we read this stuff just kind of like, oh yeah, I mean, that's what happened. But any of you guys fishermen in here? Yeah, I've done some fishing. I had a little rebel lure that I fished with from about the time I was 14 to about the time I was 17 on this little creek below my house. I think I stopped counting at like 1,053 fish I caught on this one little bitty lure. All the paint was knocked off. Now, the reason that, that and let me, let me backtrack and say, a lot of them were about this big. I mean, the, the fish were not large, and the creek was very little, and so if it got hung on anything, you could just, it was about waist out. You could just walk over there and undo the lure from the tree and then keep, I mean, we, we threw this lure for ever. That's just the fish I caught in that one creek. Then I went down to Florida and preached one summer, and I was on Lake Okeechobee, the Okeechobee, second largest inland lake in the world, and we caught all kinds of fish. I'm, I'm not a great fisherman, and I haven't had as much time to fish as I'd like to, but probably in the course of my life. In fact, Tommy, Tommy is here with us, well, the guy who works with us. Tommy took me fishing, and I thought I was an all right fisher. Uh, every year, AP has a fish fry. Tommy Hatfield is our general manager at AP, and he took us fishing. And I, like I said, I've been fishing since I was 13, and I thought I'd do pretty good. I mean, generally speaking, if I'm fishing with somebody, I don't, I don't lose to them by much. I'm going to say Tommy caught four fish to my one. We probably had 20 fish at the end of the day, and I had about five of them, and Tommy had the rest. And I just thought, what did I don't know if I wouldn't hold my mouth right or what, but uh, Tommy just outfished me. I'm not a great fisherman. But I probably I'm gonna say, I don't know, five thousand fish in my life. I don't know how many you've caught. You know what I've never found in the course of my whole life fishing? Never. Never one time have I found any money in a fish's mouth. Now, some of you guys are fishermen, you've caught a lot more fish than me. Raise your hand. If you've ever seen any money in a fish's mouth, anybody? Anybody? I've seen all kinds of stuff in a fish's mouth. I mean, I've seen crawdads and frogs, and I think I've seen a baby snake or two, and I've seen all kinds of stuff. I've never seen not a. I've never seen a piece of money. What did Peter do for a living before this? Oh, he wasn't a recreational fisher. He was a commercial grade fisherman. That means he did it for a living. He didn't catch five or ten fish a week or, or 50 fish a week. He went fishing every single day of his life and pulled in probably tens of thousands of fish. You think Peter had ever seen any money in a fish's mouth? 
And Jesus says, hey, go down the first fish you catch. You're going to pull it in. It's going to have not just money. It's not like it's just going to have a, a piece of money. I'm going to tell you the very piece of money it's going to have, and it's going to be the exact amount for two to pay the temple tax. You ever thought about what Peter was thinking as he was taking his, I don't know what kind, if he had a pole. I'm sure it wasn't a Shakespeare, Ron, uh, spinning reel. I'm sure it was, I don't know what he had his hook on. Probably something like a cane pole. Might have even just been kind of a hand rig that you threw it out there and pulled it back in. These tilapia, if I understand that's what he was catching, they probably weighed two to five pounds each. So not huge. You, you wonder if he was thinking money in a fish's mouth. You ever seen that before? Okay, what, what is Jesus saying? If I tell you that this fish has money in its mouth, guess what? It's got money in its mouth. Seems pretty simple, doesn't it? But here's the point. Jesus was never wrong. Ever. Peter just didn't seem to get that point, and I think lots of us don't get that point very often. Maybe you'll recall just a chapter back from that particular story in Matthew chapter 17. You have Jesus talking to the apostles, and they come into this particular area, and he says, who do people say that I am? And they say, some say you're Elijah, some say you're a prophet, some say you're John the baptizer. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And upon this rock, talking about the confession that he's God's son, I'm going to build my church. And then just a few verses down, I want you to see what happens in Matthew chapter 16. Just a few verses after, Peter makes this amazing confession. You then see... Jesus say, then he commanded the disciples, from that time, verse 21, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. All right, so after this, he says, and let me tell you, and he didn't, the text doesn't tell you the exact words that Jesus uses. He just says, these things are going to happen to me in the future. I'm going to be betrayed. And I'm going to be killed and I'm going to come back from the grave three days later. Now there again, you wonder how this went. As Peter was sitting there listening to Jesus talk, you wonder at what point he said, I've got to straighten Jesus out on this. He, he really is, he doesn't have this one right. And I don't know how this went, but apparently it was, it was fairly, you know, everybody was kind of together. And Peter, I can just see him, I guess in my mind, I just see him going up to, to Jesus and putting his arm around him and saying, Jesus, I need to talk to you a minute. Would you mind coming over to the side? And Peter just kind of directs him over to the side. Uh, before, <laughs> you ever felt like you needed to correct Jesus? Like he made some kind of statement that you didn't agree with and you didn't set him straight? Like somehow that the man who calmed a storm with a single word 
Yeah, he did. He, that was great, but he just didn't get this one right. So Peter pulls Jesus aside and says to him, you're not right on this. This isn't going to happen. This isn't what you need to be telling the apostles because it's not going to take place. You remember what Jesus does? He looks at him and then he looks at the other apostles and he says about Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of me. Now let's make a little practical application. You ever felt like Jesus just wasn't getting it right in your life? Like somehow the stuff that's going on with you should be different? Like for some reason Jesus just doesn't know what you're going through. He's just not there to help you. He just somehow is missing something. And you just wish He would kind of you know, perk up and, and watch what's going on in your life because he just feel you, you just feel like he's not there for you? You ever feel like Jesus is asleep in your life? Like he should be doing something that he's not doing? You ever feel like Jesus just seems to be getting it wrong? Now, you would never say that out loud, would you? You would never say, no, Jesus, I think you're getting this one wrong. But in your mind, it kind of starts with, well, why Jesus if... Why if I'm trying to do what you're wanting me to do and this person over here, isn't, why do they keep getting a raise at work and stuff in my life doesn't seem to be going right? Well, why Jesus if... Just fill in that why statement. You see, I think sometimes we're very, very much like those apostles and we just... Look at how Jesus is doing things and we just wish he would wake up a little bit. But here's the point. When Peter rebuked Jesus for saying that he was going to go and suffer at the hands of the chief priest and die, Peter thought he understood God's plan and he thought it would be better if Jesus just stayed alive. He didn't understand what was going to happen in Jesus' death. Maybe you'll recall, Jesus says to his apostles, when you go into Jerusalem, you're going to find a man. He's going to be carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him to that upper room. You ever thought about that statement right there? Do you know the apostles probably didn't think they would find a man carrying a pitcher of water? You know why? Who carried water in the first century? Men hardly ever did that. In fact, with your division of labor that they had going on in the first century, most of the time, every single time you read about someone carrying water up to this point, just about, who always carried the water? And the women did. Now, it, it had nothing to do with one being a menial task or anything like that. You know, in my house, we've got a division of labor. I weed eat. My wife does not weed eat. My wife, I don't think, has ever touched a weed eater. I don't think my wife would enjoy weed eating. She doesn't weed eat. You know what? I don't, I don't mop floors. I've never mopped a floor. Is there anything wrong with mopping a floor? No. 
Not one thing wrong with mopping a floor. And if I had the skill set and the training to have mopped several floors, I would gladly mop a floor. And I could pick it up. I could pick it up mopping a floor. But, you know, our house goes on pretty good with my wife mops and I weed it. And we get along pretty good there. First century, generally speaking, you know, you had the men, they often went out and plowed and they took care of the livestock and stuff, but very rarely did they ever carry pitchers of water. So Jesus says to his apostles, you're going to find a man and he's going to be carrying a pitcher of water. You know, there are a lot of people in this world that think they know how to do things and they know how God ought to do things. Who knows how things ought to be done? The person who can calm a storm and heal disease and cast out demons and let's get to this next one. Forgive sin. You know we said if Jesus says it, it's going to happen. I want you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 14 and let's look at a statement that I think we've repeated for years and sometimes I think we just don't really believe. John chapter 14, oh, I think you start there in about verse 1 or so. New King James translation. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, then surely I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. You know, lots of times, I think if we ask a person the question, they're a Christian, they've been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, they believe in Jesus with all of their heart, they're trying their best to live a Christian life, but if you ask them, when Jesus comes again, are you going to heaven? Well, I don't know. I hope so. I might be. Peter, if you catch a fish, are you going to find a coin in its mouth? I don't know. Never seen it before. How many times would Jesus have to do something like that for Peter to realize when Jesus says it, it always happens? Ten? Twenty? How big would the stuff need to be? You calm a storm? You call a coin in a fish's mouth? You tell them they're going to find a man with a pitcher? Of water, you explain you're going to die and come back in three days. Then you explain how many times, how how big's it got to be? How many times did Jesus need to repeat that He loves you, has the power to forgive sins, will and has forgiven yours if you're a Christian, and when He comes again, He's taking you home. Do you believe that? Because listen, every time Jesus says something, that's what happens. And if you're a Christian tonight, I want you to understand that the calming of the storm is put there for you to know 
that when Jesus makes a statement, it always happens. And you can know as sure as you know He calmed that storm and as sure as you know He came back from that grave that you are going to be with Him when this life is over. If you're not a Christian, what can you know? You can know as sure as He calmed that storm and as sure as He came back from the grave and as sure as there was a coin in that fish's mouth and as sure as there was a man carrying a pitcher of water. And if you're not a Christian, you can know for surety. doesn't matter how good your life has been. doesn't matter what else is going on in your life. If you're not a Christian, you can know that Jesus' statement is not addressed to you. You won't be going to heaven with Him. So ask yourself tonight, do I believe that Jesus Christ, when he says something, it always happens? And if I do, is there something in my life I need to change? Sure have enjoyed getting to be with you this evening. Appreciate you being here on a Monday night. Always am excited to see people come and listen to Bible-based lessons about Jesus, their Lord and Savior. You could be doing anything you wanted to do. You could be home watching the college baseball world series. You could be fishing, trying to catch fish with money in their mouth, which would not really be all that productive. You could be doing anything you wanted to do. But you chose to be here to fellowship with the saints and to hear a message from God about His Son, Jesus. And I appreciate that. Let's pray. Great God, we love you. We are so thankful for the life and the example of Jesus Christ. We thank you for showing us with many clear evidences that Jesus is your son and that Jesus came to this world to sacrifice his life and that everything that Jesus ever said was always right. We thank you for the promise that he has given to Christians that he is coming again to receive us so that we can be with Him forever. We ask you please be with every single person in this auditorium. Those who are Christians, please help them to hang on to that promise with all that they have in their innermost being. And those who are not Christians, please help them to assess their spiritual condition and listen to that statement that Jesus made when He said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and you'll find rest for your souls. Please help anybody who hasn't taken Jesus up on that statement to get their life right with you. Thank you for letting us know about Jesus, letting us get to preach Jesus, letting us try to model our lives after Him. It's in His name we pray to you. Amen.